Hi everybody, we're on season seven, episode 10. And today I have Matt Ram back with me. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Just back from holiday, so um, so if I'm a little bit vague or uh, or, or my mind is still in uh, Ibiza, um, okay. please, please bear with me. I must admit. Having, having said that, the um, uh, I'm I'm going to have to announce my retirement um, publicly from going to uh, the San Antonio nightclubs. Okay. Was, um, was it just too much for you this time? Just too much for me. Yeah, we, we did go to. Um, I, I'm going to say amnesia, but um, th- that's probably advertising on on your sh- on your uh, podcast. So I do. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, we couldn't take it anymore, so okay. um, we, we've decided to hang up our um, our techno uh, uh, clothes and uh, to just retire to cocoa and slippers. I think. But anyway, had a great that's time. Fine. But thank you. That's good. I was going to say you're doing better than me because I even for like the last twenty. years, years I'd been that cup of tea and in bed before everyone else kind of thing so um so good on you for still going (laughs) and uh, with your techno things right then everybody today we're going to be talking about arranging protection insurance when somebody has had lung cancer this is the practical protection podcast So to give everybody a little bit of a background about lung cancer, so I always like to give a few statistics and then we'll get into the real information side of things with Matt in terms of the underwriting. So with lung cancer, there is more than 43,000 people diagnosed with lung cancer each year in the UK. About 55% of these people live for more than five years, and that's when the cancer has been what's considered what's, what's known as a low severity, so caught very, very quickly. It's not had chance to, to grow significantly, and the cells have behaved themselves as much as possible when it comes to the cancer side of things. But we have up to possibly just 5% of people for living more than five years if they've had the advanced lung cancer. So that is where it has grown quite significantly. The cells have been very naughty, very misbehaved themselves. And about 10% of people will live longer than 10 years once they've had lung cancer. So it is a condition that if we look at those statistics, 10% of people living longer than 10 years, that's 90% of people who wouldn't be and that is where the insurers are going to be using all the statistics the actuaries are there the underwriters they're looking at all that information and thinking well actually 90% of people here might not survive for more than 10 years and whilst we are always wanting to see better outcomes from insurers see better outcomes in terms of underwriting and things like that we do sometimes need to understand that they are led by these statistics to a certain extent and um we can just do our best as advisors to try and understand these conditions and manage people's expectations as to what they might be able to arrange. So to start off with Matt, as usual, can you give us a bit of background, please, about lung cancer? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it, it's it's fair to say that, that lung cancer um, mainly affects older people. Or, or let's be fair with that that comment, the, the symptoms first start uh, or notice or become more noticeable uh, when when people are, are, are getting on in their in their years. It's pretty rare under the age of forty. Um, everybody, we, all the the younger members of the um, people who are listening will uh, be will be glad to know. Uh, and in fact, forty percent of all uh, diagnoses are on people over the age of seventy five. So that kind of reinforces my comment about the, the condition mainly affects older people. Matt, is um, that potentially, a, just a bit of a side tangent, and you might not have this information to hand because it's a bit of a, an offshoot, um, yeah. but is that maybe because, I'm just thinking, people who are 75-ish now, that was still quite 
an era where smoking was pretty normal and and obviously and I'm not saying that lung cancer has to be no, no, linked absolutely. to somebody who's a smoker but it is quite significantly linked to people who have smoked in the past or maybe worked in significantly um, smoky environments um do you think that's that's possibly the case I don't know if we may be seeing this I don't know I suppose it'd be quite a few years before we start to see if hopefully the the I lack of that. smoking is starting to to reduce that risk I think you're Bob on. You're you're absolutely right, Catherine. In in, in terms of um, kind of thinking around that particular statistic, um, it, it, it was interesting. My kind of my, my, my next comment was really picking up this point about you don't have to be a smoker or have current or past to get lung cancer because I know in the media that this has been um, it, it seems to be news to a lot of people. Um, but I, I say only, I'll have to use that in relation to people who don't smoke, but 72%, so as a statistics last year, 72% of lung cancer is related to smoking. Now, strangely, I would have thought that may, maybe a lot of people, maybe outside our industry, mind you, think that that would be actually be a lot higher than 72. And, you, you know, reversing it, so that's that's 28% or it's the 28 percent that it is not related to smoking now i think here um and and you know we've talked about smoking a lot and that's generally down to inhalation of the uh, the various toxic toxic substances within uh, uh uh nicotine um but the what what is now coming and again it's very high and well in my opinion got a high media profile is that there are a lot of other reasons for people developing lung cancer and air pollution being being one of them and again you know you you uh, cars being banned or having to pay vast amounts to to get into cities these days um, will be part of the government. Um, councils trying to uh, to help um, reduce that particular uh, cause of uh, of lung cancer. I won't get into the politics of whether that's a good way of making money or not, but there is actually generally a, a very good reason for it. Um, I'll I'll go on to that a little bit later on um, when we look at um, family histories of lung cancer. I know that's something that we'll pick up a little bit later. In terms of um, types of lung cancer um then the the two major areas uh, medical terms that are used um is non-small cell which uh, i hope somebody medically could come up with a better term than non-small cell um yeah. because the most the very obvious one is um small cell so that's yes. the other one. um but they're also but, keeping it simple matt so well, that's kind of nice yeah, about it as well can't be such a bad thing at the end of the day can it the, the medical world is full of terminology, so uh, maybe, yeah. maybe that's the reason, and good for them, maybe. Um, but non-small cell is, is the most common form of lung cancer, um, accounting for 87%. And you you can break that down, and I won't go into any detail of it, um, but you can break that down into squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, and uh, large cell carcinoma. And again, uh, commenting on maybe what I've said before around cancers, the, the reason why medics do this is to try and uh, put a label on the, the kind of cancer so that they can uh, provide the most appropriate treatment for it. 
Um, the good news is that um, non-small cell, as I've said, counting for 87% of cases. The other one, small cell, is, is the one that spreads very fast indeed. And um, there are cases whereby people have died from lung cancer within months being diagnosed with small cell. So that is, that is the, uh, I suppose, the, to use term, uh, the vernacular is the, 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 the nasty one of the two different forms. Um, I think it's pretty worth just saying here with lung cancer, I think advisors, um, for a start, I should say that uh, tumour questionnaires, generic tumour questionnaires are available on nearly all of the insurer's websites. And when we get into what is it, uh, important for the underwriters to know, that I can touch on some of those areas. But if you're unsure of questions to ask, um, do grab one of those uh, tumour questionnaires. They nearly all ask the same type of questions. Um, but as far as advisors, if they have a client with lung cancer, just be aware before you before you um, step in, I suppose, and, and make assumptions that what we're talking about today is primary lung cancer. Okay, so this is where the cancer starts off in the lungs. Um, you'll, you'll often see the terminology secondary lung cancer, and this is where the cancer has started somewhere else in the body, but ended up uh, spreading to the lungs. And the uh, outcomes are, are pretty different, as you can well imagine. Secondary lung cancer, if it's already spread from another part of the body into the lungs, that, that is pretty bad news. Primary lung cancer, even despite some of the statistics, um, still pretty scary. But at the very early stages and caught early doors, then, um, you know, people do survive because there's absolutely no two ways about it. Catherine, do you want me to talk very briefly about stage one, two, three, four cancers or, sh or shall we leave that? I think that's really important because that will be um... the key question for the underwriters and also yes. the key question in the context of um, survival. Exactly. And I think, you know, as, to, as an advisor, we need to make sure that we're very sort of like, in a sense, familiar as much as possible with those different stagings and the different outcomes that we could see at different levels. Right. OK. Well, stage one, um, you've got stages one, two, three and four, like some of the cancers that we've talked about on the podcasts. Stage one is the is the, the, the staging, the level which has the best prognosis, the best outcome in terms of survival and here um, the, the key determinant for uh, stage one is that the tumour is confined to the lung tissue only and it's not spread to the local lymph nodes. Um, you can look at the life expectancies here of, of Five-year life expectancies are always the the um, terminology that is used for cancer. Um, you'll you'll see that an awful lot if you read, either read medical reports or your client is 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 fortunate enough to to actually know or have recorded um, you know what they have been told by their oncologist. But at stage one, um, five-year life expectancy in the age of fifty. I did mention earlier that in the age of forty, cancer lung cancer is pretty. Uh, pretty rare but it's, it's up to 84 percent um under uh, under the age of 50 and 65 plus is, is around the 55 percent um 80 percent of people um can live at least 20 years so 
that, that, that's that's pretty good. So eighty percent that's everybody. Um, stage two is uh, where the cancer cells have spread to, to lymph nodes that are near to the lungs. Uh, stage three is where the uh, tumor cells have spread into the to lymph nodes that are further away and, and they tend to be in the middle of the chest. And uh, stage four is where it is spread to other parts of the body. Um, the areas of the body which lung cancer tends to go to, and it's certainly not exclusive, is the brain and also the bones in the body as well. So uh, not, not, not at all pleasant. Um, I think Catherine, you do did mention you mentioned um, in your introduction you mentioned uh, survival rates. But I'll, I'll just reinforce, if I may. Yeah, that'd be good. Thank you. If you look at all lung lung cancer cases, that's stage one, two, three, four, the five year survival rate is only eighteen point six percent. So that's, remember, this is on diagnosis, okay? And with you think eighteen point six percent. You think grief that that is pretty uh, pretty awful, particularly with the medicines that are available now. Um, but there's there's a good reason for that, and the fact that only sixteen percent of lung cancers are diagnosed at an early stage. So six only sixteen percent of all lung cancers are diagnosed around the stage one. Um, because people, it's a bit of a silent killer. Bit, bit like other cancers that we've talked about, particularly ovarian is another classic that springs to mind. So the so, symptoms are very, it can be very broad, very, very, because it can be, it can be a cough, it can be tiredness, yeah. it can be loss of appetite. And yeah. and it's it's almost a case of, if you if you pay attention to all the symptoms, a lot of the time for a lot of these things, it, there's always something that you should be going to the doctor for in some ways to sort yeah. of double check it all. So it is really, really difficult to to really establish it. But I do think that the persistent cough is a really key thing, isn't it? That, that it's the word persistent. Road. It's yeah. the word persistent. Yeah, and, and um, doing a little bit of research on, on lung cancer as well, it, it, I think there was a, a, a classic sentence that I read and it was talking about smoker's cough. And oh, yeah. you know, a smoker may say, well, I cough all the blooming time. And uh, but the, the, the sentence, or maybe the next sentence, the following sentence said, well, if that cough starts to change, you know, so you might have a cough all the time if you're a heavy smoker, or sorry, a smoker, but if, if that starts to become more frequent or uh, you're finding it more difficult to, to breathe, that is the time, the, the, the red flag, go and see your doctor. But I think, it, you know, it, we've talked about cancer on a number of occasions here and, and the symptoms, but it's, it's changes that are not normal for you. That, that I think is the is one of the key determinants to just go and get it checked out, um, and I would hope that despite the challenges that the NHS have got at the moment, uh, or frankly have had for many years, then uh, your, your GP will treat it seriously, and if there's any concerns that he or she have, will get you off under the uh, the two week check. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's the it's the subtlety of of those that go on if you you know particularly if you have ever been a smoker that's you know I, I can't get into what if you if you stopped when you were 20 or 30 years ago but let's be honest with you 
some statistics will show that there is still an increased risk of getting lung cancer, even if you stopped a long time ago. Um, if you have been a smoker, um, or for that matter, um, maybe you could even argue you live you live against a, a major road in a big city. We're thinking about air pollution here. Um, get 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 down to see your doctor pretty early. As I say, sixteen percent of uh, is, is is pretty awful, really. Yeah. In terms of early diagnosis, but but, but that's where we are at the moment, and um, you know, we we as uh, advisors and underwriters need to deal with what we what we see at the moment. So so there you go. Absolutely. In, in terms of treatment. Um, if the tumour is an early stage and uh, general health and somebody is is good, noting that a lot of people tend to be older when they, when they get uh, diagnosed with lung cancer, then it will be just surgery, localised surgery. Um, if that's unsuitable or the uh, unsuitable because of, generally because of the client's health or the patient's health, uh, or they frankly so do not fancy surgery, um, then uh, radiotherapy can be used. Um, but also these days as well, um, adjuvant, as they call it, um, chemotherapy can be given even at the early stages uh, to just to make sure that if any cancer cells had escaped but weren't shown on, on any of the scans, that those can be dealt with um, as best as, as, as can be anyway. So in terms of the treatment, I would normally suggest that if you if, if a patient has had chemotherapy, then that's indicative of the the, 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 the tumor may have the cancer cells may have spread throughout the body. But these days, um, chemotherapy is done on uh, given on a on a just in case basis. Yeah. Obviously, keep giving chemotherapy or somebody going through chemotherapy um, isn't something that a doctor would do lightly because of the potential, not always, but the potential side effects. But for an advisor, um, if you see, if you hear chemotherapy, please don't automatically assume that you know, you're looking at a stage three or four. It can be given at stage one as well. I always get the, I could be wrong, but my impression has always been it's like in, in terms of like scales of intensity of treatment. So obviously the surgery in, in some ways, and in, obviously I'm not going to say that that's the least severe option, but in the yeah. sense of when we're looking at how much is needing to be done. So the surgery I kind of see as like, okay, that's that's kind of the minimum of what we'd be probably expecting a lot of the time. Then I kind of, if I'm going up the scale of intensity, I would then think the radiotherapy. Yeah. And then the next one after that would be chemotherapy. So for me with chemotherapy, I always think of that as the one where we, we've needed to to go full go at this thing kind of thing yeah. just make sure yeah. that everything's all right and and I think you I could be wrong but I think usually if there's chemotherapy there's often radiotherapy done at a similar time I, I tend to hear that quite a lot is that quite standard Matt or is that more of like a individual situation yeah I think it's an individual I mean you, you, your broad uh, point that you were making there about surgery radiotherapy chemotherapy in that kind of order um I, I would have I tend to, at a high level, go with that as well. Um, um, I think in terms of your direct question, which I think was chemotherapy and radiotherapy at the same time, um, I think it's very much down to individual cases, if, if, I'm, uh, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. Um, it, it, I think with lung cancer, because um, it tends to infect older people, you also have, need to take into account the general health 
otherwise of that yeah. person. Also, a lot of people don't want to be cut open. Uh, just, just to be blunt about it, and apologies to the uh, yes. to, our, to our listeners. Because um, there is a point as well, isn't there? Sometimes with age, because I know this happens quite a bit with prostate so. cancer, doesn't it? With prostate yeah. cancer, there's a lot of sometimes watchful waiting. They call it where it's more a case of we're just going to keep an eye on it, but you're at an age now where we don't really want to be using anaesthetic we don't want to be going into the full you know because it, it's a thing you know obviously for all yeah, of us when we have surgery it's your body's having a moment and it's it's yeah, not yeah. a pleasant moment no, um, I, 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 I mean absolutely i mean prostate cancer there's you know over the last few years as well taking taking um, age and general health out of it there is of course a move to um surveillance only now with with cancer yeah. even in relatively fit people uh, prostate cancer sorry um so so things are moving along that's that's where some of the old assumptions i used to use 20 30 years ago um a, a little bit I, for me me personally a little bit of an out of date now and i shouldn't be assuming as much as uh, i did all those years ago um particularly with with with, with cancer um yeah i mean there are just some fantastic treatments around yeah um, which is great for people if you're if you're now changing the subject completely if you're a claims person and you're trying to do the terminal illness claim i was just a terminal illness just then, popped straight into my head then Matt. Then, yeah. then you know it, it, it is it is um it's a headache for those for those guys and for and yeah. let's be honest for their chief medical officers as well it's one of the things um, when i train but, people but when i'm training people about stuff as well and i talk about life insurance and and i know there's a lot of calls alan did a talk um it's protection review last year where he talked about a terminal illness claim that we were involved in where eventually it did yeah. get paid out but it was it, it was not a pleasant experience i have yeah. to say and we said that it needs to be rewritten in many ways because I've been, if i'm right terminal illness the rules around it were sort of set up around 40 years ago and obviously <laughs> medical advancements have changed significantly and and it's that thing with me with terminal illness cover especially where you know it's that thing if, if you are told you have less than 12 months left to live and it's usually to do with cancer with the majority of people and and one of the things that we found where we've been helping people in those situations is that you know with the oncologist that they're quite reluctant to say yeah, absolutely will definitely have less than 12 months usually might or think or we i believe and and unfortunately yes, that's enough for the insurance to go well well, that's not a certain, you know, and in, in a sense, which is, is is horrible because ultimately, if someone's told terminal cancer, they've got this. They're looking at this document that says we'll pay out for terminal illness, yeah. And and it, you know, it does cause quite a lot of it. I know that's a bit of a side tangent there, but yeah, absolutely, no, I agree with you there. And it is something that you know we definitely feel that needs um, a really good deep dive into in the industry as to how that's um, and not obviously not all insurers are like that we do have somewhere if someone is told that they've got terminal um incurable cancer they will pay out regardless of length of time frame given um but you know the majority are on this um 12 month thing still yeah i i totally agree with you by the way i i know that i sat on a panel um at um, a reinsurance seminar um where and it's an interesting one as an advisor, by the way, because you, you you probably will disagree with my very black and white statement. I know you can't believe I'm black and white on occasions. Oh, go on then. On this one. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, and this, how long ago was this? It must have been 10 years ago. And um, I said terminal illness is, is, is at, well, and TPD for that matter, or even go a little bit more mm. extreme, is totally broken. It absolutely we think about how we because it, it just confuses our clients 
Yeah, and it gives negative feeling. And absolutely, we get it all the time. And it, and it it may, I'm not sure, it may have sounded like a good idea at the time. And I can go back into why TPD in particular was developed, but let's, we haven't got time for that today. No. <laughs> Maybe um, we should do an episode on that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it does need a complete rethink. I, I completely and agree with you, Catherine, on that. Um, yeah. might, be, might, be, might be a bit of a, a side issue to what we're talking about, but I think it's ne- it's absolutely very, very important side issue. Absolutely. I was going to say, and just for advisors listening, what I tend to do with clients, and it's obviously to each their own and do what your compliance and what your manager says, but when I speak to people and I explain terminal illness cover, I generally say to people, this is awful to claim on. Um, it's not pleasant. I, I give that exact thing that I just said there where I said it's usually cancer. The oncologists usually don't say less than 12 months. Most people like, understand that because we do get told about cancers a lot. It's something that a lot of us are, are very mindful of and, and try to be very aware of. And so what I say to them is that if you are in that situation, absolutely, we can try. But I just don't want to give, in a sense, I don't want to give false hope because, you know, we see so many points where it doesn't. So I kind of see it. It's nice to have it on there rather than not have it on there. A bit like TPD. If you can have it, why not? But at the same point, to be honest, it's it's not really, it's not bringing significant value to the, to the, um, policy with the majority of insurers contracts I'm probably gonna get myself really told off there um but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's 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 just being truthful at point of claim we are not seeing the outcomes that we would expect for terminal illness covenant and obviously in terms of the claim statistics that we see for insurers life insurance critical illness cover income protection phenomenally good claim statistics we don't usually get that breakdown of the terminal illness statistic um and the success rates of those which would be very interesting to see. Um, I think as well, Catherine. Sorry, just to interrupt you very, very quickly. I know we could. We could We've got uh, off on a tangent, we could, haven't yeah, we? <laughs> as, as usual, we do. But uh, I think with the, um, the 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 claim statistics on um, on terminal this, it's just worthy of note. And I'm not going to make any further comment to this. Mm. But when a uh, when a client, sorry, when an insurer. Um, Let's say you get the example of, well, your doctor is saying, I'm not sure about, your oncologist is saying, I'm not sure about whether this person's going to die within the 12 months to die, die, et cetera, et cetera. And the insurer does not pay out. That is not treated as a decline. That is treated as a postpone. Ooh. So... Because of course, because it is in a sense, it is potentially postponed depending it upon is, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. when the so... person does pass away, and then the end of the policy dates, they might still. Well, also, I mean, you know, that's, that, what I think you will find as well on a practical basis is that <clears throat> um, if if a, a new treatment is being used, or um, one of the one of these targeted drug therapies is being used, yes. then it'll often be in a trial basis. Yes. And it may or may not work. So what an insurer will say, and you know, you can I can understand it to a degree. They will say, okay, well let's let's review this in twelve months and see where you're going at that stage. Yeah. I, I actually am very I'm familiar with somebody very um close to me who their okay, mum no 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 and their mum and it, it was it was oh, unfortunately obviously eventually it did pay out because the the mum did pass they away. Did yeah. Um yeah. but during the terminal illness side of things, um there was a lot of um, uncertainty and feeling of uh, information to know and not know because they kind of didn't want to know yeah. that there was potentially terminal illness there. But they also wanted to make sure that financially they were secure and that things could be done support. And 
And, you know, I know when the insurer, when they did it, they basically said, well, we're turning this down because you are terminal. However, you're now on this new drug, so you might not be. And it, that was, it was a real shock and jolt to them because it was, they were faced with that thing of, well, actually, yes, you know. And it's, it could sound daft. People might think, well, hang on, why were they going for terminal illness if they didn't want to know if there was a terminal illness? It, it, you're having something which is incredibly emotionally traumatic happening. Yeah. And... You, the emotions, you know, you can't describe or assume or make any judgment as to anybody's feelings or what yep. they do and don't want to know at that stage. Mm-hmm. So they had this like double whammy of going, oh, wow, yes, actually, this is terminal, you know, but now there's this trial. But actually, now that I'm on the trial, I can't actually get the payout. So then it, it just ends up being yeah. very, very difficult and very emotionally exhausting for everyone involved. And obviously, as advisors, we tend to be the emotional support for that yes of course you do yeah you know far yeah. more so i think you know what we've done Matt? we've had a really good natter so i'm gonna i'm gonna go through the next two things we'd usually yes, focus on very fast so in terms of what you need to know <laughs> as an underwriter i'm going to be saying what type of lung cancer i mean i think a lot of people would just say lung cancer yeah. but we're probably going to going lung cancer what type is it when was it diagnosed um the staging and grading if we knew it if we know it or potentially what we said before the tnm score so tango november mike score potentially um the treatments and it's quite important i always find as well i say to people how when did you have that treatment for like chemotherapy they might say oh well i had it from the february to the may of that year but then it might also be that they say well i don't know but i know i had 13 sessions and i think either of those tends to be interchangeable to a certain degree i think you know with underwriters i could be wrong um and when that treatment ended uh it's always really really important as well and then anything that's kind of any lasting complications that can sometimes be um something that we really need to know about um have i missed anything matt that you would want to know no no you've you've, you've got it all data diagnosis really? when it was ended important because that's that's the that's the kick date sorry yes. I don't, that's the kick start date not to be confused with cic yes um, the staging type of treatment and i think i'll probably also add the results of follow-ups yeah uh, yeah the ongoing annual checkups and things ongoing like that which should last for five years yeah. generally um and you know the, the, the result of the last checkup and if they're still within that five-year period what's the date of the next checkup so those those follow-ups are very useful i have seen a number of cases over the years where people have just said right i've, I've got cancer and I've, I've had surgery let's say i'm talking about cancer generically here um but i'm not going to be reviewed yeah i don't i don't want to know Yes. Those cases are usually decline, I'm afraid. We just can't offer terms. Um, the, the follow-ups are extremely important. Yes, no, I'll, of I'll, course. I'll, I'll shut up there. No, way. absolutely. No, no, absolutely. Um, so then the other thing is um, any kind of connected conditions or long-term symptoms that we should be aware of as an advisor. Because I know there's certain things like, um, I know this could sound a bit silly. Um, well, I was going to say it could sound silly. It's not silly at all. But so one of the things I do um, with people who have neurological conditions, quite a lot of the time, I tend to ask them as well, are they able to hold a driving license? Because I always think that for me, that's a really good indicator of how strong the neurological condition is. I mean, obviously people might just not drive because they don't drive, but it can be really useful, especially say like um, somebody who's got epilepsy, you know, they might have had at some point where they've had a seizure in the last few months and that can really affect the options, you know, at times. And we, we could just be asking obviously when the last seizures and that, but sometimes just asking that little bit of an extra of a, a, a related, but not 
insurance application question in a sense um, can really really help us to get a good understanding of Parkinson's for my dad obviously is a really good one as well are they able to hold a driving license it really helps the underwriters to understand the stage of progression in a condition is there anything that we should be looking for I mean is it I'm trying to I'm sorry at the top of my head I'm thinking anything like recurrent pneumonia bronchitis anything like that well, certainly lung conditions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly if you, if you <coughs> excuse me, if you've had surgery, depending on what what has been removed, um, certainly lung conditions um, and, and as a uh, because of the surgery are worth noting. Yeah. Um, for life insurance, then generally, um, unless you've had a complete lung removed, one of your lungs completely removed, then there isn't usually too much of an issue. Um, But if you're talking living benefits, so critical illness and income protection, then obviously that can have an impact on your your lifestyle and your ability to work or whatever. Um, But really it's, 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 it's the results from the surgery. um, I'll probably leave it at that. Okay. No, that's absolutely fine. And what and the main thing is then, what do we think the potential outcomes are for life, critical illness, and income protection? Well, if you alluded to, and I know um, uh, we spoke very briefly about this um, in our pre-chat. Um, then, for, for for stage one lung cancer um, follow-ups, importantly, all clear for that for that period or, or ongoing, then you can usually get life insurance at usually around four years. Yeah. Stage one. Stage two, I think you're looking at at least five years and potentially you're going to need um, an underwriter would need assistance from a chief medical officer on those types of cases. Um, uh, And also depending on the treatment as well, given some of these new treatments that are around. Stage three and four, then um, life insurance is usually certainly not available for a long period of time. Say, let's say between best case i would probably say is around seven eight years to ten years right so i'm afraid rather like your opening gambit on this um and we've we talked about some of the frightening statistics uh we're not looking at a great outcome in terms of the living benefits um i would be surprised i know you're going to disagree with me i'd be surprised <laughs> that this would be available um, given the statistics that we talked about, and uh, I would be surprised if income protection was available, given some of the statistics. Um, but I, I know um, you and Cura, being Cura, uh, <laughs> can, uh, can sometimes produce miracles. So uh, that, that's where I come from. So overall, I'm afraid we're not looking at um, great response from the insurance the insurance industry on this but I'm afraid some of those statistics we've talked about really just reflect the why yeah I think you know in terms of like the research and that that we have um and indications and things like that very you know probably very similar to yourself you know I think the key thing is I think you said it was only about 16 percent of cases are caught really early didn't you I think that was what That's the right. that you yeah. said yeah. and so with the ones that are caught really early depending upon how quickly the treatment's gone those long-term implications and symptoms you know, there can be after a certain period of time, you know, there might be some options for potentially standard terms um, for um, the life insurance and income protection from things that we've been seeing. There is potential maybe for critical illness cover. It's going to be very, very restricted in terms of who would be even able to potentially look at it. And, um, you know, I would be saying that I would think that there would be a premium increase um, 
it, it sounds terrible, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was also at least a lung cancer exclusion on there, possibly some other cancer exclusions as well. Um, but yeah, there are often lots of different ways and options of looking at things. And, um, you know, I would hope that with most people, there would be some kind of option that can be looked at. But I think as well, it's always that thing, again, of managing expectations really early on for advisors as well. You know, we don't promise the earth. We say, look, we, we you know, we need to research this first. And it might be that the options that we can do for the clients, are, there's options there and they're good for what that client can have. But it might also be that that client just doesn't feel that they actually meet exactly what they're wanting to achieve. And that can be quite difficult because, you know, they maybe feel that they're not getting everything that they're wanting. Um, but, you know, as an example, I'm just thinking, you know, if somebody had had lung cancer two years ago and it was stage two um, with all, and we're wanting life insurance, it's, it's quite likely that we'd have to go to a specialist policy. And that is very likely to exclude claims relating to the lung cancer, which is not all situations i'm going to say it's not all situations but majority no, of situations no. that would happen um and that's very very hard because there is an option there it is going to pay out for a significant amount of circumstances but ultimately as well for that person just from an advisor's point of view they're probably still in a bit of an emotional state um to a certain degree and they are they're, they're going to feel possibly a bit vulnerable actually and it's it's not exactly meeting what they want it to do and even though we know it's there, we know it's potentially a good option. It might have lots of add-ons as well, you know, potentially those value-added benefits that are going to be really useful for this person. They might just decide it's not right for them. And, and in some cases, I'd say it's it's not that the advisor's done anything wrong. You've not. It's not that you've not tried hard enough. It's not that you've presented it in the wrong way. Sometimes people, depending upon the options, if it is going to be quite limited in what they can have, sometimes it, it, they just don't feel it's right for them. And you've, you've done your best job. You know, you've, you've, yeah, as absolutely. long as you've put the option in front of them, you've yeah. explained it clearly, then, then that is the best that you can do for them. Okay. So last one then, Matt, just very, very small before we go. Um, what about family history of lung cancer? Because we were having a little bit of a chat about this beforehand, weren't we? Where we were, a lot yeah. of family history, they will say... Um, family history of lung uh, family history of maybe cancer before the age of 60 or 65 so from what we were saying before in terms of numbers probably quite a lot of people with lung cancer would be older than 65 um so they wouldn't necessarily come up in the question set and advisors if you ask someone and say oh lung cancer and then they say 72 we're not going to suddenly whoop and rejoice and say fantastic they don't need to go on the application we need to handle that very very sensitively because still yes it is a positive outcome for that person in the application but there's still a family close family member there who's had cancer so we just need to make sure that we've been trained in the right way to handle that um but not all insurers ask about all cancers some of them specifically ask more targeted you know has somebody had this cancer or this can you know all the ones that you would see as maybe a familial connection so lung cancer wouldn't necessarily fall into the question set anyway at times um but Matt, i know you've got some things about lung cancer and family history so so Share your wisdom, please. No, not at all. It's, I mean, it, I agree with everything you just said there. Um, I, I, it's unusual. Um, I say unusual. We, we've talked about various cancers during um, the last few years on, on these podcasts. Um, but it, it, I thought it's interesting just to note and share with everybody that the, the, the lung cancer gene mutations are not usually inherited. Okay, yeah. so not familial. 
Um, they, they're usually what, what medics or androids are called acquired mutations. So they're not born with the genetic mutation, but these mutations happen during the lifetime of the individual down to external yeah. factors. And you, you, the one that we've already spoken about is the inhalation of tobacco smoke um, and the, um, the toxins within it. But we've also mentioned things like air pollution. There are certain types of other chemicals, radon gas of all things like I kind of came across, mm. um, which can cause these mutations uh, later on in life. Um, so it, lung can, I'm not saying that it cannot, you know, there, isn't, there aren't genes around that are not acquired, but generally speaking, um, these are things called acquired mutations caused by external factors during the lifetime. So luckily, the, the, somebody having lung cancer, uh, even before the age of 65 or age 60, wouldn't, shouldn't, I don't think, automatically trigger an underwriter to, to be concerned. They're, they're not, it is pretty rare to have a, um, a genetic a familial genetic um, disconnect um, that that would run through families. So th th I think that you know again, lung cancer isn't shouldn't be. He says, knowing knowing your research, um, <laughs> that's something that um, that underwriters will start concerning themselves with. I don't have any research to contradict you, Matt. So don't worry. Thank goodness for that. For a change. <laughs> Excellent. No, oh, that's fantastic. Well, so, thank you. So I'll just leave you with that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you, and thank you for for listening, everybody. And as always, Matt, your insights are incredibly helpful. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you listen to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too. Thanks to our sponsors, the Ox members. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Pleasure as always. Thank you.